Again, this morning's reading is from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Listen as I read. This is what Holy Scripture says. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gates of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do take, about, take out your Bibles again, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we'll be looking at the second portion of the passage that Dwight read for us just a few moments ago. So Luke 7, our focus will be on verses 11 to 17. I once heard the, the story of a, a builder, a master builder, who had been commissioned to construct one of England's great cathedrals. And so after he drew up his plans, he visited a quarry that was nearby so he could choose the stones that he would use in its construction. And so he, he went about and he looked for just the right stones for its foundations and for its pillars and for its buttresses and for its spires. And as he wandered about, eventually his eye fell on a certain stone and he quickly picked it up and he took the hammer that he carried with it and he began to just rain down blows upon that stone. And if that stone had had a voice, I'm sure it would have cried out with the pain. It would have cried out and asked, why? Why are you doing this? Why me? 
And the builder would have said, it's okay. Just bear with me for a moment. I need to shape you. I need to shape you to, to fit you into this great work of art that I'm building, that I'm building for the glory of God. So if that stone would just endure the pain, it would see that the builder's plan is good. If that stone would just be patient, it would see that the pain is accomplishing something wonderful. And sure enough, when the cathedral had finally been built and it had finally come to completion, that stone had been carefully placed right there into one of its walls. And throughout the ages, that stone and all the stones around it, the building itself, just bore witness to the skill, to the wisdom of that builder. And just like that, our God is building something wonderful in this world. God is creating a masterpiece that showcases his genius, a masterpiece that will cause every knee to bow, that will cause every tongue to confess his name. And just as that builder carefully fit each stone into his building, our God carefully fits each one of his people into his plan. God prepares us for the work that he calls us to do. Some he prepares by giving them great riches. Some he prepares by giving them rare talents. Some he prepares by calling them to take high positions. And some he prepares by giving them deep sorrows. And whatever God gives, it falls to us as his people to receive it and to accept it and to commit ourselves to stewarding it faithfully. It falls to us then to trust the builder and to trust the builder's plan and, and to humbly, willingly accept the role that God has assigned to each one of us. And so today's sermon is for all of us, of course, but I especially want to speak to those of you, to those of us who have felt the blow of the hammer. I especially want to speak to those who know the pain of being fitted to a difficult calling. I know you pretty well. I know there are many of you here who are enduring, you're enduring times of pain and sorrow and uncertainty. You're enduring times of grief and times of loss, times of trial, times of suffering. And I want to call you, I want to call all of us to trust in our God even when we can't see exactly what he's accomplishing through our very difficult times. I want to call us to be faithful to God, to be faithful to him and just trust that in some way he is preparing us and equipping us to carry out his will, to do something for his glory. And I'd like to do that by looking at this story from the life of Jesus and considering together a woman who was called to endure a very, very deep sorrow of her own. And I chose this passage because it's been especially precious to me and over the last couple of years since the Lord called my son to himself. This passage and several others in the scripture have just been so, so precious, so meaningful in the aftermath of that loss. And so what I'd like us to see today is three things. You should find this in your bulletin. We'll see that death is strong. We'll see that God is stronger. 
and we'll see that death will die. Or to say it as a sentence, death is strong, but God is stronger, so death will die. So our narrative begins, this little passage begins as Jesus is arriving at a town called Nain, and so we can picture him and his disciples, and there's a great crowd of his followers coming with him, and they're walking together, this kind of ragtag mob slowly ascending this street that leads to Nain, a little city, a little town upon a hill. And as Jesus draws near to the gate of the town, Luke says, a man who had died was being carried out. And so here's Jesus attempting to go into this city, but a group of people is streaming out of the city, a group of people who are weeping and mourning and lamenting the loss of one of their own. When a time like that and in a climate like that, people who had died needed to be buried very, very quickly. And so this man had probably died that very day or perhaps in the previous night. And already, already it's time to lay him to rest. And so he's being carried out of the city upon a bier, a kind of burial platform that's being held by a number of people. So we wonder, who is this man? And Luke tells us in what may be one of the most, I think, one of the most tragic verses in the entire Bible. You can see it in verse 12. A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And so at the head of this crowd is a woman, a woman who must just be staggering under the weight of her grief. And we learn this is not her first time leading a procession from the town to the tombs because at some point in the past, she'd lost her husband as well. And now grief has been added to grief and pain has been added to pain. First, her beloved husband, now her only son. We said death is powerful. Well, death has twice now exercised its power in her life and it's left her bereaved. It's left her brokenhearted. Of course, when she suffered the loss of her husband, it was her firstborn son who had become head of the family, her son who would be given the responsibility to care for her. But now he too is gone, and so, so what's left for her? Who will care for her? Who will meet her needs? And then you might think, how will her community regard her? How will they think about her now that she's suffered not just one great loss, but two great losses? Don't you think they'll be tempted to wonder, what does she do wrong? Why is God punishing her in this way? She must be, be tempted to echo Naomi and just say, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Well, this is the scene that Jesus sees as he approaches the town of Nain. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus just goes wading right into it. He just goes wading right into all the sorrow and all the grief and all the pain. And isn't that just like our God? Isn't that just like our God to go right into the midst of humanity's pain and suffering and sadness? Not to stand on the sidelines, but to get involved. So verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. So Jesus sees this woman and he has compassion on this woman. And, and I'm sure his compassion involves feelings, but it also involves action. And so he walks right up to her and he speaks. He speaks to her and he says, do not weep. 
Can you imagine? Can you imagine saying those words? We need to understand just how strange this is. Jesus approaches a woman who's enduring the most difficult moment of her whole entire life, and he walks up to her and he doesn't say, Oh, my condolences, or I'm so sorry. He says, Do not weep. Just a couple of years ago, as I said, we had to lay our, our dear Nick to rest, and several of, several of you took hold of his coffin, and you carried it through the cemetery. You made your way to that, that spot in the ground. Clinging to my arm was a woman who had lost her only son. Let me say, nothing would have been more shocking, nothing would have been more out of place, nothing would have been more heartless and for some stranger to come walking up to her to look her in the eye and to say, do not weep. Don't weep, but this is real. This is real. My family's broken. My hopes are dashed. My heart's shattered. How can you tell me not to weep? These could have been the most cruel of all words. But there's a difference between Jesus' words and anyone else's words in that Jesus has the ability to follow those words with action. He can do something. He can do something to turn this woman's mourning into laughter, to, to loose her sackcloth and to clothe her with joy. We'll see what he does in a moment. But first, I want to consider this. Aren't you thankful that our God is compassionate? Aren't you thankful that God promises he is close to the brokenhearted, that he saves those who are crushed in spirit? Aren't you thankful that he promises he will not break a bruised reed, he will not snuff out a smoldering wick? Aren't you thankful that just as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him? He knows our frame. He knows we're just dust. And I tell you, we can't take this for granted. I've studied the religions of the world. There's almost no other faith, no other God created by the minds of men would be compassionate. But our God is so careful to understand we know he is full of the most tender compassion toward us, his children. Our God draws very, very close to us in our sorrows. God's compassion draws him near to us when we cry out in pain and sorrow, when we cry out for help. Our God is always most present just when he's most needed. He's present by his word. He's present by his spirit. He's present by his people. And right here in this story, he's present by his son. We've seen that death is strong. Let's see that God is stronger. Verse 14, then Jesus came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. So he reaches out his hand and he touches that platform that the young man who's, who's deceased, that the young man is lying upon. Why does it matter that he touches the platform? Why mention this little fact? Well, that's associated with death, and so to touch it is to immediately become ceremonially unclean, and yet... Jesus touches it without being unclean, without being defiled. So who could touch death and yet be untouched 
by death. There's, there's something going on here. There's something happening in this story. Jesus speaks again. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Have you ever seen a, a dead body? I expect most of us have at one time or another. We've seen one of our friends or one of our family members laid in a casket and we've stood there, we've taken our place and we've gazed at their mortal remains. But I very much doubt that any of us have looked intently at that body and said, I say to you, arise. We've wanted to. Of course we have. We've longed to see color come back to the cheeks and warmth come back to the body, but we know our words would have been we may as well go outside and command the sun to set at, at noon. We may as well command the earth to, to reverse its orbit. We could cry out all day and we could plead all night. We could cut ourselves until we're bleeding like the prophets of Baal and it would make no difference. Nothing would happen. We have no power over death. But what about Jesus? Verse 14, Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. You see what Jesus does here? Jesus goes toe to toe with death and he shows who is master. Jesus stares death in the face and he proves that he has supremacy even over death. See, when Jesus commands, all must obey. When Jesus orders, none can resist. When Jesus speaks, even the dead hear. Even the dead heed his voice. I love how Luke describes this. You have to see the little switch he made here. He says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. He's been talking about the young man, but now he tells us about the dead man. It's the dead man who sits up and speaks. And let me tell you, Luke knew as well as we do that dead men do not sit up and Dead men do not speak. Dead men don't do anything because they can't do anything. And yet this dead man, this formerly dead man, he sits up and he speaks. He's proving that the words of Jesus have power. The words of Jesus have all the power of Almighty God. This, this man could no more disobey than creation could disobey when God said, let there be light. This man can no more disobey than the, the great deeps could disobey when God summoned them forth to flood the earth. This dead man can no more remain still than the course of history can remain still when God commands that trumpet to sound. When God speaks, there's no power, no force, no angel, no demon, no woman, no man can resist his will, not even a dead man. This world was created with a word. History will end with a word. Satan will be cast down with a word. Our loved ones will be raised up with a word. Death is overcome with a word. So death may be strong, but God is infinitely stronger. And hear this, what Jesus did to this man who was physically dead He's done to those of us who were spiritually dead. Without Christ, we were dead in our sin. We were as dead in our souls as this young man was in his body. But God spoke. 
God spoke through the gospel and he enabled us to hear. And so praise God that the word he spoke was powerful. Praise God that the word he spoke was living and active, that it pierced to the division of soul, of spirit, and of joints, and of marrow. Praise God that the word he spoke stirred our dead souls to life. Praise God that he has power over dead bodies and he has power over dead souls. And so I ask, have you believed in Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord, is he your savior? I want to speak especially to the younger people who are here. We've got some kids, we've got some teenagers, we've got some young adults. I want to speak to you especially and simply ask, have you believed in Jesus? And if you haven't, I just want to urge you to put your faith in him today. I want you to hear his voice as it calls you to repent and to believe. See, we're talking about a young man in this story. A young man who thought, I'm sure he had years and years ahead of him, decades still to live. Like that, that young man, my, my Nick, thought he had years and decades ahead of him. He was studying for a lifetime of ministry. He was preparing for a lifetime of marriage. He had all sorts of plans for the future. And then in a moment, he was gone. In a moment, he was in heaven at just 20 years old. No medical condition, nothing he took, nothing he did, no accident. The Lord simply called him home. But what if Nick had delayed? What if he had said, hey, I've got lots of time ahead of me. I've got, I got years and years to figure this, this thing out. So I'll worry about my soul later on. For now, I'm just going to live my life would have been too late. So my, my young friend, don't delay. There is no day like today. There really may be no tomorrow. We just don't know how many days God has appointed for each one of us. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. And I want you to hear him saying that to you today. Arise, believe, obey, trust in Jesus Christ today. Back to our passage, verse 14. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. What a glorious moment. It's fun to just picture it in your mind, the people gasping and screaming out in surprise and dancing for joy. God has done something miraculous. God has demonstrated that even though death is strong, God is stronger. And it's not even close. It's not even a fair fight. This is an elephant against a mouse or a, a mountain against an anthill or a battleship against a kayak. Death has power. Make no mistake, death has power. But only the power that God permits death to have and only for as long as God permits death to have it. We've seen that death is strong. We've seen that God is stronger. I want to show just one more thing, which is simply death will die. I want to draw your attention to a little line that would be very easy to overlook or to see as just detail that has no great significance. Verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and here's what it says, and Jesus gave him to his mother. 
So if we focus on this line, read the Bible carefully, look at every line, look at every word, this little line unlocks some really precious treasures. Why is that? Because you'll find this line is not just a description of something that happened. This line is also a quotation. This line is drawn verbatim from the book of 1 Kings. There's a story in 1 Kings about another widow who had lost her son, though this was hundreds of years prior. The book of 1 Kings tells about a a great prophet named Elijah who went to a city called Zarephath, and there was a widow in that city who cares for him and who feeds him, and then tragically, the son of this widow gets sick and he dies. And so Elijah takes that child and for some reason he stretches himself out upon him three times and he, he prays, he pleads, pleads with the Lord. And here's what it says. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and gave him to his mother. Very same words. And so what Luke is doing here is he's very deliberately drawing a line from Jesus all the way back to Elijah. He's making sure we understand that there's some kind of a connection here. And really what he's doing is he's setting this story within the sweep of redemptive history, the grand sweep of what God is doing in this world, part of God's unfolding purposes in this world. He needs us to know that these aren't two isolated stories, one in 1 Kings and one here in Luke. He, he wants us to know that these are really just two chapters in the same story. We know as well that the story is progressing as a good story does. It's moving from something to something else. It's moving from beginning to end. And we know that because of the differences between the stories. Like the fact that Elijah can only do miracles through the power of God Jesus does miracles through his own power. Or like the fact Elijah has to pray, he has to plead with God, please won't you help this boy? Jesus just speaks a word. So we can see that God's plan is moving, it's advancing toward the end. See, we can miss this connection, but the people, they understand. Because verse 16, it says, they're seized with fear and they glorify God and they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. Great prophet of the Old Testament was Elijah. They understand there's another prophet like Elijah in their midst. They understand there's an even greater prophet than Elijah in their midst. And we understand this is the one that Elijah was pointing to all along. And so this story draws connections from the past to the present. It it draws connections from what God has done to what he is doing in this unfolding of his master plan. But it also draws connections from the present to the future, from what God is doing to what God will do. See, the people say, a great prophet has arisen among us. They say something else. They cry out, God has visited his people. See, they know that God's power and presence is with them in a new way, in a pronounced way in an undeniable way. They've observed what Jesus has done and they know something unique and something wonderful is happening right here before their eyes. There's no doubt whatsoever in their minds that God has visited 
his people. His presence is right there with him in the person of Jesus Christ. And just as Christ has visited his people, we know that Christ once again will visit his people on that glorious day when he returns. Because even though, of course, Jesus was put to death, death could not hold him. Death had no power over him. And so he rose and he ascended into heaven. But the time is coming when he will return. God will visit his people and we will never, ever be parted from his presence. And so surely through the resurrection of this young man, surely through his resurrection, we're meant to see the resurrection of all those, everyone who's ever fallen asleep in the Lord. Surely as this young man opened his eyes and the first thing he saw was Jesus Christ, surely we should see you and me opening our eyes to see the face of the very one who has saved us from death, who saved us through death. Surely in these characters, surely we should see this widow as standing in for every widow, having her sorrows soothed by the Lord himself. Here in the story is it's really every broken-hearted mother receiving back from Jesus the child she surrendered to the arms of Jesus. Here's every grief being comforted and every wrong being made right. The one who defeated death in this man's life will defeat death once and for all. The one who brought comfort to this mother, he'll bring comfort to all of us who love him. I began by telling of a stone that had been crying out in pain and bewilderment as it felt the blow of the hammer. I felt the blow of the hammer as that, that master builder was preparing it to take its place in his cathedral. And I'm sure that widow in our story cried out as well. I'm sure she wondered why God's providence had directed she would go through something so painful as the death of her only son then she got her answer. She got her answer when God raised him. It's clear that God's purpose in her tragedy was to testify through all the ages that Jesus Christ has power over death for 2,000 years. Just think about it. For 2,000 years, people have been reading the story of this otherwise unknown woman, and they've been learning exactly what we've learned today. Death is strong. God is stronger. And ultimately, Death itself will die. And I'm sure that woman would gladly testify she is content. She was content even to pass through that pain because of how God used it, what God was up to in it and through it. We all experience times of pain and sorrow and like that stone, like that woman, we cry out in pain and we, we long to know why it can seem so purposeless. Unlike that stone and unlike that woman, God doesn't usually reveal why. He doesn't tell us here and now why we're going through these situations. He doesn't reveal to us the exact reasons we need to endure these difficulties and endure these trials and endure these losses. And so, so we suffer without clear answers. But we never suffer without hope. Never without hope, for surely God is as compassionate toward us as he was toward this woman. 
Surely God has purposes in our sorrows just as much as he had purposes in her sorrows. Surely, just like that master builder is up to something in her life, surely he's up to something in our lives as well. And so this, this story, this true life story from the, the, the life of Jesus, surely it can encourage us that God is accomplishing something good and something glorious and something wonderful in our sorrows, even if we can't exactly see what it is. I know there are people sitting here today who suffer with pain, constant, terrible physical pain. I know there are people here who have experienced miscarriages, sometimes a number of miscarriages. I know there are people here whose children have turned away from their parents, perhaps turned away from the Lord. There's widows here and widowers. There's People who have lost a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister, there's so much pain. And yet we need to know and believe that somehow even this is God's will for you. Somehow even this comes from his fatherly hand. Somehow even this is in some way fitting and preparing you for God's own purposes. It's precious to him. It's meaningful to him. And you can, you can be certain that someday, even if not until eternity, even if not until we're with him, somehow it will all make sense. Somehow we'll see it will showcase his glory. As we wrap up, here's something to consider. How long was the gap between when that woman experienced her greatest grief and when she experienced her greatest joy. How long was that stretch of time? Probably no more than a, a few hours, maybe an evening and a morning. And I ask, is there really that much more time between the sorrows we endure today and the full and final comfort we will someday receive. So we need, to, we need to be eternal thinkers here. We have an entire eternity stretching out ahead of us, endless ages in God's perfect presence. And so with that in mind, thinking eternally, how long is this stretch of time between our grief and our comfort? See, when the Apostle Paul considered his pains, when he considered his afflictions, and make no mistake, he suffered terribly. These were deep pains. These were terrible afflictions. He declared, these are light and momentary. That only makes sense. It only makes sense if, if Paul knew that what awaited him was glorious and eternal. So what Paul was doing was he was drawing hope from the future. By faith, he was just reaching into the future. He was reaching into the, the boundless storehouses of heaven. He was just grabbing great handfuls of hope and, and joy and peace, things that would sustain him here on earth. So even though in the present his pains were weighty, momentous, he was absolutely convinced that when he took them in the light of what was to come, they would be light and momentary. 
So don't you see how, how long eternity must be and how great the glory to come must be that would make even his deepest sorrows just pale in comparison. And we need to do the same. Just a, just a little while ago, I got an email from a gentleman who's now well into his 90s. He lost his dear son more than 70 years ago. That's a long time. It's a long time to be carrying a deep sorrow. It's a whole, a whole lifetime. But now this man, he wrote me just to say, my time's almost here. He's looking forward to it. He knows that reunion is imminent. It's so close. He can almost feel it. So close. He knows it's almost there. He can almost, almost feel it. Almost feel his son's arms around him again. Let me ask. When that dear old man's been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, how long will this time seem between his grief and his joy. How long will that truly seem? When he sees God's plan completed, when he sees God's purposes perfected, do you think he's going to march up to the throne and say, what you asked of me was just too hard? When he's worshiping in God's presence, age after endless age, will he, he go up to God and say, these 70 years were too long. What you asked of me was unfair. Of course he won't. It's unthinkable. Listen, our pain still hurt. Our persecutions still torment. Our trials still agonize. We still weep with the pain of it all. And that's fine and good. We should weep. These things truly do hurt. But by setting them against the backdrop of eternity, we can say, even through tears, light and momentary, because the gap between the moment of our greatest grief and the moment of our greatest joy, it will really prove to be just so small, so brief, so minor, just like it was for that stone that cried out as it was being fitted to the cathedral, just like it was for that woman who was grieving her son. And so until then, bear your pains well. Receive them humbly. Steward them faithfully. Believe that, that in the mysteries of God's providence, he somehow means for you to have them, that, that in some way they've come from his good and purposeful and sovereign hand. Take those sorrows and just turn them outward into love for God and service to his people. And the God who has entrusted them to you he will grant you his grace to bear them well, to bear them well all the way to the gates of heaven. Death may be strong today. Death is strong today. And along with death comes grieving and suffering and sorrow. But our God is infinitely stronger. And soon enough when his plans and his purposes are complete, death itself will be put to death. And on that day, we will live with him. We will reign with him. We will stand in awe of him. We will stand in awe of this masterpiece, this absolute masterpiece that this divine builder has made, and we will praise his name. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, we know and we experience the fact that you call us to endure many things, many pains and many sorrows on this path to heaven. Father, we pray that we would understand your sovereignty, that we would believe in your goodness, that we would believe that all of these things have been entrusted to us so we can bear them well and for your glory. Pray that we would do that, Lord. Pray that our desire would, to be, would be simply to make your name great through our greatest joys and our deepest sorrows. We pray that you would keep us faithful, always faithful, until the day we stand before you and praise your name in the presence of all those we love who have gone on ahead. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.